1: And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullock, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, business continuity, crisis management, pandemic planning, and anything that's relatable to those topics. Uh, speaking of topics, uh, again, to everybody out there, if there is something specific you'd like us to talk about on the show, please feel free to go to the Voice America page for the show and uh, click on the button underneath the graphic that says send uh, me a, an email. I do get all emails and I do respond to everything. Also, if there's a product or service or company you'd like to promote on the show or sponsorship, please feel free reach out the same way and I can get you some information on that. And fingers crossed, um, they will be doing a live broadcast in Phoenix at the DRJ conference on September 28th um not sure what's happening i'm starting to hear a lot of conferences are going completely virtual right now so we'll see what happens with that one but fingers crossed can still make it i am scheduled to speak at the continuity and resilience today conference in toronto october 7th and 8th and uh, just recently announced the bci world conference is now going virtual i was going to be speaking there in uh, the uk uh, now that it's virtual i will still be doing a presentation um either november 5th or november 6th so it'll be online but you'll still be able to uh maybe even see what i look like who and that be scary so today um i mentioned uh that people reach out about topics and i did have someone reach out through a friend uh, and colleague uh Actually, a friend and colleague Alvaro Orantia, who's been on the show a couple of times, reached out to me about another colleague uh, um, to talk about the topic of privacy, privacy, sorry, and business continuity. So I'd like to welcome to the show privacy expert and business continuity expert I'm going to I hope I say this name right Constantine Karbaliotis.
2: That's right.
1: I said it right. You did. I, you just have to been, say
2: all the letters in order, and it's amazing how it works out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've been practicing that all day, thinking, I'm going to say this wrong. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> no, you Welcome fine. to the show, Constantine. How are you?
2: Very good. Thank Very good.
1: you. Could you uh, take, now, I know you and I have touched base through email and had a, a quick chat and everything, but uh, could you give our listeners uh, a, a quick uh, you know, two-minute bio on, on yourself, what you do? Sure.
2: Um, sure. I, I am a privacy guy. So I have had a number of different roles. I've worked in consulting in one of the big four. I have been a privacy officer in two multinational organizations. Um, and um, I am a lawyer, but I tell everybody I'm in recovery. Um, <laughs> because I've been operational and technical, so I, I kind of you know, cross the boundaries. So my, my byline is that I've been doing uh, privacy um, since before it was cool. So I've been doing privacy for now 17 years.
1: And, it's, and I'm, I'm glad you reached out actually when you did, because I'm starting to see a lot of talk about, you know, security and cyber. We've had some people on the show talking about that, you know, and privacy concerns, because we do have so many people working from home right now. So your timing was just fantastic.
2: Well, it it seems to be that the COVID pandemic has, like, brought out, I think, a lot of the issues where privacy and business continuity disaster recovery intersect, Um, Mm -hmm. because we're having one of those big moments now where suddenly the need to process and handle personal information is quite extreme, and um, we're all being pushed into, um, you know, literally a new way of working a new world. And so I think that um, this time, this period, is going to stress test, I'm sure, you know, from from your experience, not only people's business continuity and resilience and disaster recovery, but it's also stress testing their privacy programs. And we're going to start seeing, especially, I think, over the next, um, you know, couple of years, the consequences of building a house on sand, So, um, Mm -hmm. we can talk about some of those, where those things have started to happen and, and, you know, and the the sort of the points of contact between BCP and and privacy.
1: Well, let's, we're going to get there. So, but first, can you kind of tell us about privacy, you know, what some of the common principles are so that everyone out there understands really what you're talking about and what it is?
2: Well, so, People typically, um, you know, think of, you know, from a cyber or security perspective, and that's usually around securing the perimeter. Let's make sure that the important data does not get out. And that's a very important principle in privacy of course, you know, we call that safeguarding data. But that's not the only thing that we concern ourselves with. And there is uh it's not a one-to-one connection with um you know, cybersecurity and that's where sometimes things get left behind. So, we think about not only the you know, the CIA triad, you know, con- you know, confidentiality, integrity and um, availability. So those are important. If you're collecting personal data, for instance, for health purposes, you want to make sure it gets to the people that, you know, need to get it. You need to Mm -hmm. make sure that, you know, it's available, that it's accurate, it has integrity. So all of those things are quite important. So there's a lot of intersection points. But there are some things that are a little bit different because in privacy, uh, we think about, well, do we need to collect that information at all? right you know rarely do you have um the business being challenged on a, you know from the cybersecurity side do you really need to collect mother's maiden name? Why are we getting the shoe size? It's not essential mm-hmm. to the business purpose for which we're collecting it. So we think a lot about business purposes and privacy. We also think about limiting not only the collection but the use. Um, you know, if we don't have, a, you know, like if it's not related to the business purpose, we shouldn't be using the data for other purposes. We don't ask for data in case we need it later. There's, you know, that, that, that's, that's craziness. Um, we limit disclosure. You know, need-to-know principle, obviously, is something that, you know, is well-known in cyber, and we really like that concept as well. If you don't need to know, you don't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, but and another key area for us is retention, and this is, I'm sure to your listeners, something that they're already aware is a really an Achilles heel for a lot of organizations, because we just keep data way too long. You know, we just got cheaper and cheaper storage, and we just, you know, cram everything onto the cloud and all the servers and storage capacity and we never get rid of anything. And privacy does not eliminate the need to keep data. Of course, you have legal and business reasons to keep information. But privacy says, well, when you no longer have those two things operating, get rid of it. What you don't have is not a risk. So there's a couple of areas that we we tend to think differently. Some of the controls that we have um, are around, um, you know, that are important are in contracts, right? Um, How Mm -hmm. we limit, for instance, vendors and third parties in terms of how they use information or notice, notice the individuals. So a lot of these are outside the traditional areas that people think about in terms of tools to manage data. Um, and a really critical point, and one that really touches on, on you know, the challenges I think BCP people are having today, is around, well, individuals have the right to know what you know about them. Under GDPR, under Canadian law, um, you have the right to know what a company knows about you. And that by itself, I think, presents one of the biggest information governance challenges, because admittedly, organizations have been a bit sloppy in actually documenting how things change over time. And the you know the guy who designed it or Gal has left the organization and nobody really knows what the flow of information is. And so all of that uh, poor information governance that's been inherited um, now really comes out when we start asking who who has my information? Who are you sharing it with? And suddenly, when you have legal obligations to actually answer those questions, it becomes obvious where the flaws in the past have have come up. That we built again a house on sand.
1: Now that that gives me a couple of questions, actually, right right off the bat, because social media is uh, you know we're we're all. Not everybody, but, you know, a lot of us are on Facebook or Instagram or something on our phones or downloading something. And they all ask, you know, um, as you put it, you know, we don't need to know your mother's maiden name. So why are we always getting asked for our contact information then? Isn't that a privacy concern?
2: Well, it it should be. I mean, we shouldn't be asked for, for instance, all of our contacts unless you know like unless it's a contact app right that's helping you manage mm-hmm. your contacts why do they need to see your contacts so that's not exercising data minimization and that is one of the key things that in particularly in under european gdpr is becoming a challenge to many of the um, um, social media giants and tech uh, giants is You know, are we collecting more data than we need? And uh, have we actually told people? One of the main challenges right now in Europe to Google is we've given, you know, you give your consent to this, you know, long uh, privacy notice that you frankly need a lawyer in order to understand and interpret, and no one ever reads them anyways, Um, and... Somewhere in there, they've got the language that says, "Yes, we're you know allowed to collect this information." But who actually really understands it? Why is it all bundled together? That you know, and why isn't some of these things being drawn out with like big red flags saying, "Hey, we're getting your geolocation." Um, mm-hmm. A um, well-known Canadian coffee chain um, has an app which apparently tracks you everywhere, and when you mm-hmm. go near. Yep say, to competitor's stores. And when you're on vacation, potentially, in countries where they don't even have a location, you have to ask, why? Why are you collecting this data? And why is it necessary when the app is ostensibly to allow you to order a coffee? Yeah. So... You know, there's a lot of questions coming up. You know, it's not just social media. There's a lot of information collection. And we voluntarily went into this. You know, we all decided to upload our photos and, you know, share them with friends. What we didn't appreciate was we were also building a facial recognition database, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah. so there are, you know, some principles in, in privacy where, you know, okay, you're going to collect data to fulfill a business purpose. If I'm selling you a bed, for instance, I need to know your address to deliver the bed, right? You need to get mm-hmm. paid, you know, if you're using credit card, those are necessary. But let's say I want to now send you information about bedding supplies, Well, I should get your consent for that. And the further away I get from the original purpose, the more clear I need to be. And especially if there's a potentially unusual or harmful aspect to it, that there's a risk that I'm creating, I should really draw your attention to it and not bury it in a 4,000-word privacy notice that you can't read on your phone anyways.
1: And, And usually written in what I would call legalese that can't understand well, anyway.
2: <laughs> yes, well, you know, you, that's why I'm saying, you know, why <laughs> why should you have to? Um, I, I think that there were some studies done that said that if we had to actually read and understand every single privacy notice that were presented during, you know, like in, in a typical person's use of, you know, say, um, uh, a cell phone, um, you'd need, you know, a, a substantial number of days a year set aside just to be able to do that, and who 's got that time so yeah. there's a really a big job I think ahead for companies in terms of being clear with their consumers, their patients, their employees to be straightforward and and, um, and respectful of you know that, those audiences and I think this is coming mm-hmm. out most. Importantly, right now, given that one of the things that we're looking to do with contact tracing apps is get people to voluntarily share their information. Um, The Prime Minister of Canada was on... um, you know, um, online yesterday explaining to people why this is important and emphasizing the data will be collected anonymously, there's no geolocation, and emphasized over and over again. Why? Because if we don't have trust, we won't have participation. So Mm -hmm. this is now a critical learning moment, I think, for organizations when they realize in order to get the data in the first place, they have to earn trust. So, right. and, and it's because it's not going to work otherwise. It's just not going to work. So, a lot of time was spent discussing that yesterday, and I think that. What the COVID crisis is doing right now, aside from teaching the people a lot about business continuity planning, is it's also educating people because there's a great deal of concern in the public around contact tracing and about privacy. And so now they've been drawn into perhaps in a more substantial way than I think any time in the past, understanding how their personal data is important is needed, but at the same time their. And, you know, hearing the privacy community talk about the concerns about the over-collection and the over-retention and, you know, um, and also potentially how it's being shared or used. So all these issues are now coming to the fore.
1: And my other question uh, had to do with retention. Um, I've worked with clients um, where we kind of have to take, um, you know, an employee online training, like a code of conduct and you know, money laundering things to make sure that we're aware of all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And in, in one of them, there was about retention of data. And they said for seven years, how long should or can organizations keep this data that you're aware well, you of?
2: Know, there, there is usually a fair bit of effort many companies expend, and often by retaining outside counsel to develop something called a records retention policy or schedule. that should set this out. And it will vary by jurisdiction, you know, country, but also by industry, because it depends. Mm. There's many regulations telling you you need to keep information. So, typically, for tax purposes, you keep information for six years. So, the rule is six plus one. Then... But um, for employment in Ontario, for instance, if you want to defend yourself against um, an, uh, maybe an employee's, you know, action, you have to keep it for at least two years because that's the limitation period for launching a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. So it will vary on the nature, and that's also an area where companies are terrible because they'll keep everything for seven years when there are parts of the file that if they applied the right retention, would be gotten rid of sooner. And oh. um, so, and in specific industries, like for instance, pharmaceutical clinical trials require information to be kept for a certain period of time. Lawyers' records need to be kept for ten years. So there's a, a really a wide variety of retention timings appropriate to different kinds of documents in different industries. It's not a simple thing. You can't develop a retention schedule without the involvement of legal. Sorry. So <laughs> you need, however, <laughs> to know what that is. Now, the problem is many companies have a retention schedule, and it's sitting in a file cabinet someplace or on a, you know, um, a SharePoint, and no one actually applies it, which is actually terrible because it actually says if anyone were to challenge you later, oh, you knew better but you didn't actually Mm -hmm. do it. So that's the critical question for your listeners. Go find the retention schedule and then, obviously, you know, start trying to apply it. Now, it's easier when we talk about systems and databases because you can actually, well, if they're designed well, you put in an actual you know, retention policy into it. Um, Tools like document management are great for actually enforcing retention, um, especially against unstructured data, because as we know, that's more than half of the data in most organizations. So you you, you can actually build, leverage technology for this. Paper, of course, is still an issue. Everyone loves to shovel it off to, you know, their document storage and never look at it again. Um, But it costs money, to do that. And there's actually this is one of those rare compliance projects which actually saves the organization money is actually do a spring cleaning, get rid of things and keep you know that keep that process going. And what is also important to remember and this is now coming back to some of the key privacy issues. Again, what you don't have is not going to hurt you. I've had to deal with breaches where the magnitude of the breach was multiplied sometimes by a factor of two or three because they just didn't get rid of the data. And you oh. start multiplying the consequences in terms of how many people you have to notify, the credit monitoring, and then you do have now regulators. There was a recent case in, in Germany and in Europe where the uh, regulator actually fined the company, not because there was a loss of data, but because they didn't apply the retention schedule. They are creating unnecessary risk.
1: Uh, well, on that note, risk, because I know we've got some questions about that coming mm-hmm. up. So I, I'm, I'm going to put a, a bookmark there. We're going to end our first segment. We're talking with privacy expert today, Constantine. Constantine excuse me, I'm getting a cough here. Constantine Carabiliotis. See, I told you I was going to get it wrong. Carabiliotis. It's
2: okay.
1: Carabiliotis, Car- 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 <laughs> Car- <laughs> yes. I knew I was going to mess up. Sorry. <laughs> uh, we'll be right back.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
4: Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas.
5: Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel.
6: Think of the world.
7: Do you know that over 70% of people with disabilities are not counted in the workforce with twice the unemployment rate of the non-disabled? Join Joyce Bender, CEO of Bender Consulting Services and a disability leader as she talks about best practices and newest trends in disability employment on Disability Matters. As a person living with epilepsy and hearing loss, Joyce is an international advocate for disability employment. Tune in on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone road.com. Again, that's info at stone road.com. Now back to preparing for the unexpected.
1: And welcome back to the show. We are talking about privacy today. Constantine, um, just at the end of our uh, first segment, you mentioned risk. So I'd actually like to talk about the privacy risk, uh, sorry, the privacy impact assessment. Um, Can you tell us about that? Because I've worked in project management and program management as well. And uh, for a couple of clients, we've done privacy impact assessments. So can you explain to us what those are and how they relate to business continuity and disaster, disaster planning?
2: So a a Privacy Impact Assessment, or PIA, is a methodology to understand and then mitigate risks associated with a project. Um, And so anytime you're introducing new technology or or you're altering a technology, you should um, conduct or update your PIA. And my basic sort of way of explaining this is it's to avoid sleepwalking into risk. Make conscious choices. Um, Privacy people aren't, despite what many may think, about, they're not the people who say no. We're not all about stopping, you know, things from happening. The only way you can serve your communities is by processing personal data. But what we want is a conscious understanding of what the risks are and making choices about, you know, who, what that that risks, you know, how they, those risks can be mitigated. We also want accountability, right? It's not the privacy officer or the project manager who signs off on the PIA. It's the business mm-hmm. owner. They're the ones mm-hmm. who actually fund these things, right? So that's where putting the responsibility, the accountability, which is a key concept in Canadian law as well as European law and increasingly around the world. Accountability is the accountability of the organization. It's not the privacy officer who has all of the burden. It's a shared responsibility because privacy, unlike other areas of compliance, and probably more similar to BCP, has got to be embedded throughout. Everyone has to take their accountability, and particularly the business. So PIAs are about, here is our recommendation. What are you prepared to do? And then it's not like it's a binary thing. You know, um, it's a more dials. We reduce the retention on this element of data, we can reduce the risk, and so the collection is not so bad. Or maybe we can say, we'll exclude this from our data collection, and we've reduced the risk. So there's lots of different ways privacy professionals working together with professionals like in BCP, cybersecurity, you know, but all of the parties at the table. This is a team sport, this thing called privacy. And particularly, uh-huh. you see that coming out in a PIA. It should never just be a compliance-oriented activity. And the best time to do a PIA and the best way to introduce PIAs is into existing project management and methodologies, because there are usually gates funding where you can actually introduce that. I was always a big fan of avoiding duplication of effort in the collection of information. You're doing a threat risk assessment, add a tab to your spreadsheet, do the have privacy addressed at the same time. You've got a BCP tab, add privacy. Another great area for BCP and privacy people to work together is actually on disaster recovery and and business continuity planning. So again, because of the COVID crisis, we, you know, dealing with a lot of people working from home. And suddenly we have to extend the control that we've normally had in the office to the home environment. Do we have crosscut shredders there? Do people have file cabinets? Are they using, you know, laptops with encryption? Um, are they sharing their computer with their family members at home? These are all uh-huh. questions that we have to start asking. And in a, you know, because that's become, you know, work at home has become a critical element to people's business continuity right now. So we have can to we do even it the ask, right I way. got a
1: question. Can can we even ask those kind of questions to people if they're working at home? You know, do you have a shredder? Do you have this? Do you do you have that? Where, where the point? Where,
0: yeah, where, where does that,
1: that line exist? You know, you know, because you're you're bringing up some interesting uh, points here. But how far can we ask? You know, where someone turns around and says, "Why you shouldn't be asking me these questions? I'm not comfortable with you asking me." You know, what can we ask?
2: Well, I mean, it's not a question that really relates to their personal information to say, are mm-hmm. you equipped with these things? Because really, if they're not, the business should be providing those things. Mm-hmm. It should be ensuring because it's it, the responsibility of the organization for the data it's handling exists regardless of where the work is being done.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
2: it, it will be organizations. That, again, I suspect over the next twenty-four months, we're going to see the consequences of VPNs being set up hurriedly to support people from working from home when they weren't trained adequately, where they weren't, you know, instructed on these things, and they right. weren't maybe equipped with the right technology or the right, um, you know, controls. To ensure that though they're working from home, I mean, what happens if somebody's laptop is stolen? What happens if there's a break in in their home? I mean, it is the organization's accountability still. So, really, we need to equip people to be good, you know, um, employees, even regardless of where they're working.
1: It's so really for, for, um, uh, it's not just the privacy, but they've, they've got to do some sort of a, a, an awareness and training aspect to this exactly. as well,
2: right? Yeah, education is the first best mitigation in privacy because when you begin to understand, as you communicate this to your workforce and they understand what the constraints are and how they should be using and sharing information and how the, you know, they have to mimic the work environment from home. I mean, you know, it, and it's difficult. You know, how many people do you see doing um, Zoom calls from their kitchen? I mean, they don't necessarily have the private space to be able to talk about things confidentially, even. Mm-hmm. Yet, we have to start thinking about these things, because it has become absolutely essential to the continuity of most businesses. Um, There are so many intersections between BCP and privacy. One of the biggest identity theft incidents that took place was a result of Hurricane Katrina. Paper blowing in the wind caused Mm, incidents to happen for years where um, identities were being stolen. We have to think about how in a, and in these events, um, there is risks not only to the organization's continuity and to its compliance of, you know obligations in general, but especially in relation to privacy. Um, another area, you know, it, that we have to think about as we're trying to ensure business resiliency is, of course, we're looking to collect what temperature information from employees who three four months ago would have thought that, but. This is where weaknesses about retention and access are going to be called out. How long are we keeping that information? Are we keeping it? Do we share that with information with anybody? So, now we're collecting health information in order to make sure our work environments when we return are going to be safe. And but have we have we, you know, done the proper work beforehand to understand um, even in general, how that kind of information should be protected, shared, and so on. So all of these issues now are really, I think, going to come to the fore.
1: I, excuse me. I, I tend to think that's going to happen because you know we've got so many people, like you said, working from home now, and a lot of them haven't been trained on you know privacy. Um, there mm-hmm. are different things that are occurring, but there's also people working from home that deal with paper files. And you mentioned shredders and things like that. So there's got to be challenges with, um, I guess, transporting these files as well, you know, because let's face it, when we go to the bank, we we can't just say, yeah, that's fine. We have to sign papers and they get copied Mm -hmm. and shipped around. And if all these people are working from home, there's got to be some privacy concerns with regards to that.
2: Well, and you know, I mean, some of the challenges you know we've met, I've had to deal with in the past. I mean, I had to deal with breaches, and breaches are another area that, of course, there's a lot of intersection between business continuity and privacy. Um, you know, because they're they're a crisis, <laughs> quite literally, mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> and they need to be handled as such, right? And um, but um, you know, if you think about it, um, you know, and and this happened, you know, where we had a you know an incident arise because. Not surprisingly, something went astray when it was sent by a courier, Um, and so we altered the business process after that to um, ensure that it was only transferred electronically. So, of course, you had to build security around that, but it was a less risky exercise to scan the documents and make them available to the people who needed them electronically than to physically transfer the documents. So... This could really push, you know, we've always hoped for a paper-free world. Well, this might actually push that because, again, what's not being physically communicated is probably at lower risk. Um, Mm -hmm. But I mentioned breach, and I think that we should talk about that because the work from home doesn't mean that breaches don't happen. Um, (laughs) We still are going to be facing events. Um, And a breach is a business continuity issue as well. One of the things that I learned, you know, when uh, working for large organizations was there was all these great mechanisms those brilliant PCP people had set up. And the smart thing for me to do as a privacy officer was to leverage them. Because they already had mechanisms in place to call together people when there was a crisis. They had already mechanisms in place to deal with the media implications that we might have to contend with. So Mm -hmm. there's a real... This is why BCP and privacy need to be best friends, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's so much risk. Oh, and... Your privacy buddy should help the BCP person in thinking about what they're doing. Okay, so what do BCP people do? They collect the sensitive, you know, contact information of key people. Mm. Maybe you should do a PIA of your BCP program. <laughs> yeah, um, I know I chuckled. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, backup sites. You've got to be conscious, talk to your privacy, you know, officer, talk to your privacy lawyer, because, you know, we do have some constraints in certain parts of the world about where data can go. There are data localization requirements. And if you're keeping your data, for instance, in Canada as a matter of policy, but your DR site is in the US, well have you thought that through. So CCP and privacy should be working hand in glove because so many of the communication systems can support management of privacy events, but also privacy needs to be built into the way that business continuity and disaster recovery is designed and operates.
1: I completely agree with you. I I am going to lose my voice today, I swear. Um, I, I think that's a perfect spot to end because now I, I, on our next segment, I'd like to talk at some of these failures and take that a step further and, and get into some of the, the failures of um, privacy and business continuity because you touched on a few of them. But I'd like to kind of dig in a little bit more on those. So we're going to end our second segment. We are talking today about privacy, and we will be right back
3: become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america
4: are you finding your frequency it can be described as that space between failure and success it's the future of digital media it's finding your voice it's engaging topics content and ideas
5: Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting. Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel.
6: Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now.
7: Do you know that over 70% of people with disabilities are not counted in the workforce with twice the unemployment rate of the non-disabled? Join Joyce Bender, CEO of Bender Consulting Services and a disability leader as she talks about best practices and newest trends in disability employment on Disability Matters. As a person living with epilepsy and hearing loss, Joyce is an international advocate for disability employment. Tune in on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: We're listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone road.com. Again, that's info at stone road.com. Now back to preparing for the unexpected.
1: And welcome back to the show. We are talking about privacy and business continuity today with privacy expert Constantine Carbeliotis. And Constantine, uh, lots of great information in the first two segments here about privacy and bringing business continuity into it. And I'd like to take this last segment to find out, you know, what are some of to use your own phrase, you know, business continuity and privacy become uh, quote, best friends. You know, what are some of the common failures of privacy and business continuity? You know, how can they work together? What are some of the drawbacks that they really need to touch, touch more on?
2: Well, Uh, You you had mentioned the the training um, and awareness element before, and I think that's probably a good starting point because you can't do this alone. This is a team sport, as I mentioned, and there's an accountability that has to extend throughout the whole organization. Um, So in in this sense, BCP, DR, and uh, privacy have a lot of common touch points in having to go to um, the the workforce itself and educate them um, so that they're ensuring that 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 triad confidentiality integrity availability is maintained and that um, they understand their role in ensuring you know that data is is actually treated as an asset. Of the organization, um, and oftentimes I think that's, you know the single biggest failure. It's easy to regard a bunch of electrons as not having any value, but for most organizations, that is the value of their organization. So that education component is, and that accountability, particularly that it isn't simply some specialist sitting in an office somewhere who um, are accountable for this thing. Everyone is policies and procedures. Well. You know, you can only enforce, you know, rules in a company through policies and procedures. It's how we talk to ourselves. And if it's not written down someplace, well, you're going to have a heck of a time trying to um, discipline an employee for not doing what you wanted them to do. So you have to actually, you know, to get to the training and awareness part, have some instructions for them to follow. This is what you're going to do in these situations. Because what most employees want is, tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. And mm-hmm. that is often a key failure to um, is just simply communicating in a way that is um, clear instructions. High-level, you know, sort of, principles, which is easy for, you know, people, especially in privacy, to fall into, don't give adequate instruction to somebody in IT as to how to do a privacy impact assessment and who to involve. So you've got to get down to a certain level of granularity to actually instruct them as to the processes to follow. So, and, and, and making sure that they reach out to the, those experts, the people that are sitting in that office so that they can leverage them. Because we shouldn't be expecting everyone to know everything that they, they need to know about privacy and business continuity. They know, should know when to ask, and they should know at, at, uh, how to engage people, and not to be fearful of it. Another really big area for both privacy and business continuity in terms of risk is third parties, vendor management. Rarely do our nice little data flows encompass the information sharing that's going to the many vendors that most organizations have. And particularly becomes a problem when they have a breach because, of course, or, you know, or if they have a business continuity event, the, the thing that um, often happens, and, I, and I've, I've heard this said at privacy conferences, and I've had to repeat this, it seems, ad nauseum. You can outsource the task, but not the liability. If you engage a third party to do something in terms of processing data for you, whether from a business continuity or privacy standpoint, you remain liable. So what is your duty? Your duty is to do appropriate due diligence to the third parties that you're entrusting data to, to make sure you remain in control, that they are handling it appropriately, and in the same way you would be handling that data. You can't just pitch the ball over the fence. So that is a key key area of risk because we see so often at least a third of my incidents arose because of vendors. So, and I and I I suspect that from a you know again an availability and integrity standpoint for business continuity, that is one of the key you know still one of the key issues for them. So there's a lot that has to you know of collaboration that can take place in investigating and assessing third parties before we ever actually enter into a contract with them. And then, of course, you know, you can't neglect the contract. That's, in fact, how we enforce rules on vendors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, security, right? Well, you know, we can't do our jobs without um, working together closely with our friends in information security. And yet still, as you can tell from, you know, the number of events that are taking place, you know, in the media, that is still one of the biggest areas of concern. And this information security event, as much as a privacy event, is a business continuity event, because it threatens the ability of the organization to continue. It threatens the integrity and availability of data. We just have to think now about the number of ransomware attacks that are taking place those go to the heart of the resilience of the organization and its ability to continue doing business. So this is where I see the biggest common failures is that it could be summarized as being too siloed. It's not having those the right experts around the table sharing and working and collaborating together because, frankly, there are so many things to gain from that exercise. Um, There's rarely enough resources, each of us individually, to be able to do our jobs effectively. But when we collaborate, information security, privacy, business continuity, there is um, often shared resources, shared approaches that can help each um, of those responsibilities be that much more effective.
1: I got a couple of questions for you. You you mentioned the policies and procedures. Should there also be something in place that allows for an employee to identify when maybe something doesn't seem right with regards to privacy? Like, hey, should I really be sending this? Like, I know you mentioned organizations. You know, employees want to know what to do, and organizations need to tell them. But is there a way to go the opposite direction?
2: Absolutely. And you know what. I, feel, I felt that my biz, biggest success as a privacy officer was when I got people actually raising questions from the business and asking, mm. is this the right thing to do? Does this create too much risk? Once I had that conversation engaged, I knew I had won, frankly, because they were now taking the job on of owning the risk associated with the processing of data. And you can't mm. do it otherwise. You can't have... You know, as much as we, you know, the the folks in privacy would like, an army of privacy professionals, no one can afford that. The reality is you have to have those people out in the field, have a mechanism, and this is done ideally through the training and awareness, of how to escalate questions and issues. Should we be doing a PIA? Does this create an unnecessary risk for breach? is this, um, should we be enforcing need to know in this context? When they start Mm -hmm. asking these questions, then you're so much more um, uh, powerful in terms of ensuring that the right things are being done. And that's exactly the same kind of thinking BCP and DR should be engaged in, is Mm -hmm. having those kinds of questions. Should we be storing it in this fashion? Should we not be backing this up? Uh, you know, are we, you know, creating a risk to our resilience by doing it in this fashion? So these are, you know, absolutely, you're right. One of the, you can't, you have to ally. And one of the biggest, best ways i found is to create champions within the organization. Um, you can find people who have, you know, some, you know, awareness, they, you know ideally, you know actually have them charge you know with five percent of their their responsibility to be associated with say privacy or business continuity. and that way they become your champions, they become the people who advocate and give you early warning when somebody is doing something really interesting that maybe you should know about.
1: My second question actually related to the vendor management part. Because with a lot of organizations, we're you know we're obviously all dealing with different vendors upstream and downstream, you know even our DR vendors, you know uh, with our alternate sites and property managers and everything. What kind of questions or things would we look at from a privacy perspective with regards to you know our our, our vendors? What would we look at?
2: specifically? Well, it, probably one of the things you want to do. I mean, there's two elements to it. You need to show that there's appropriate due diligence. So, uh, an organization that adheres to standards like NIST, ISO, or um, SOC two, uh, you know, which is you know helps in terms of being able to demonstrate that they have actually got effective controls, right? Because mm-hmm. you know we're we're all faced with unfortunately the challenge that not o- there's not usually enough people and enough time to assess every vendor to the extent that we would like to. So leveraging standards, I think, is a very important tactic to be able to be effective in this. The kinds of questions you want to know is, and this is fundamental, what is the flow of data? If you can't describe the flow of data, first of all, that is not a great, that doesn't bode well. But it also is what triggers your legal obligation because it's, what, what? Not only what is the data, but how is it flowing through entities and jurisdictions? That's what triggers legal obligations for the organization in terms of mm-hmm. how it documents, for instance, say, the export of data from Europe under GDPR or demonstrating your accountability for information flowing from Canada to other jurisdictions. You need to be right. able to describe the flow of the data. We also want to have an ability to inventory. We want to know what data they've got. These are fundamentals to information governance, right? To know Mm -hmm. what the data is and how it's flowing. Everything else comes from that, because that then allows you to know what data they've got in their hands, the risk associated with it, and make appropriate decisions, again, risk-based decisions. Um, You know, what information should they be allowed to have, your vendors? Um, You know, What kind of controls would you want to have in place? Maybe it's okay your DR site is in another jurisdiction, but maybe you want to make sure that the encryption keys are held only in Canada. So you see, there Mm -hmm. are ways in which to, I mean, there are all consequences for all of those choices, both in terms of cost and risk. But making educated choices comes from, again, conscious acceptance of risk, no sleepwalking. So Doing that PIA, let's go back to that, is really quite critical because that allows you to identify them. But also, and again, bear in mind, no one's going to have perfect knowledge. There will be unanticipated things that will happen. Everyone's going to face a breach. So what you want to be able to show is that you behaved reasonably, that you did think about these things. You tried to do the best you could in order to protect the information. You took a risk-based approach and documented it because the best Mm -hmm. plans in the world don't count for beans unless you can prove it.
1: Well, the best best, plans always go awry.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and the best summary of privacy that I've read, I can't claim credit for it, but it was about GDPR, but it applies, I think, generally. Do what you say, say what you do, be able to prove it. And I think that's critical both for BCP and for privacy is that we are able to actually articulate what it is that we're doing and be able to evidence. Evidence is becoming absolutely essential for uh, organizations, not just in privacy, but especially in privacy. Claims have been made, and you go back to the vendors. Vendors should be able to prove they're doing what they claim they're doing. That's the expectation that you should be saying, how do you demonstrate you know everyone 's got lovely policies. I had a vendor once present to me a beautiful iso consistent you know cyber and privacy policy and uh, the lady I was working with pointed out she'd looked at the metadata and it had been bought and downloaded the day before
1: well but so we've uh, we've actually come to just about the end of the show. Believe it or not. And I know you can okay. keep going. <laughs> <I think Yeah. laughs> there's a lot of good information that you're you're sharing with us today. And so, <clears throat> unfortunately, I do have to, uh, you know, we got to end the show or uh, our sound engineers will get upset with me if I keep going. So, <laughs> so, Constantine, thank you very much for sharing all your insights on privacy. I hope a lot of the business continuity people out there um, take notice uh, about the PIA and, you know, reach out. And start talking with the group. So thank you very much for your time and and sharing all that expertise with us.
2: Thank you, Alex, for hosting me. And I really appreciate the time to have a chance to talk to your audience.
1: Great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And everybody out there, if there's a topic, please feel free to get in touch. Let me know. In the meantime, stay prepared, everybody.
0: Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.